Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The Associated Press reports that five finalists have been selected for the position of Chancellor of the UW-Madison campus. UW-Madison Provost John Schultz is the sole finalist from Wisconsin. The other candidates include provosts from the University of Pittsburgh, Notre Dame, and University of Utah. The dean of UCLA Law School is also a finalist. This is the last semester for current Chancellor Rebecca Blank, who is moving on to Northwestern University. Wisconsin teacher retirements declined by 17% last school year when compared to the year before. That's according to data from the State Employee Trust Fund. This past school year, 4,300 teachers retired, a level more consistent with most prior years. The surge in retirement in 2020 was largely attributed to the pandemic and the trials of remote teaching. Even with retirement numbers down, Wisconsin has more projected teacher openings than students in its education schools who could fill them. And that's presuming that everyone in the education schools wanted to go on teaching in Wisconsin. The Air National Guard announced that it has concluded the first part of its investigation into the presence of PFAS chemicals at Truax Field. The investigation began with drilling more than 220 boreholes throughout the site to help determine the footprint of the contamination. The resulting data will determine the nature and extent of PFAS present and help determine the most effective means for their cleanup. Last week, drillers tested potentially contaminated sites with further studies and drillings up to 100 feet. The process provides data which can help identify how the containment migrates. Uh, how the contaminant, rather, migrates. All of this data will then be analyzed to identify locations for the installation of monitoring wells later this summer. After a year or so of data collection from the wells, the information is sent to the EPA, which will recommend a strategy for remediation. The plan will be made public for review and comment prior to its release. It is likely this process will take three to five years. Madison Teachers Incorporated stated in a release today that it's, quote, disappointed with the proposed pay increase proffered in the district's recently released budget, according to the Capital Times. The union stated that the proposed 2% base wage increase is less than half of the maximum allowable rate of 4.7%, which is set by the state. The union uh, noted that Wanakee, Sun Prairie, Kenosha, Racine, and Milwaukee school districts all started negotiations with their employees with a, either a 4.6 or 4.7 base wage adjustment. Base wage is the only major topic on which school districts and unions can bargain following Act 10. And now on to today's top stories. Last month, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources told one of the largest dairy farms in the state they must monitor their groundwater. While the move was seen by environmental activists as a win, the farm is now firing back at the DNR, asking them to review their decision. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. 
Kennard Farms is suing the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources over water quality requirements. Kennard Farms is one of the largest dairy producers in the state and is capped at 8,000 cows. And they're pushing back on a decision from the DNR to require groundwater testing on the farm. The move, which was filed on Earth Day, says that implementing the requirements would be harmful to their business. It's the latest in a drawn-out battle over how the state should approach groundwater testing. Kennard Farms applied for a permit to double their capacity a decade ago. At the time, the decision was lambasted by a coalition of environmental groups who filed a lawsuit. That lawsuit went through years of litigation and was finally resolved by the Wisconsin Supreme Court last year. The state's highest court found that the DNR had to weigh groundwater quality more heavily in permit decisions. Chris Clayton is the agricultural runoff section chief with the Wisconsin DNR. He says that this lawsuit is a reaction to the DNR's decision last month to mandate groundwater testing and limit the farm's expansion. In this case, we modified the permit to include uh, an animal unit cap for the farm for the remainder of the, the permit term. So essentially it caps the number of uh, animals that they can have on the farm to, to their current level. Um, and also we put in their requirements having to do with uh, the need to monitor for uh, groundwater impacts um, underneath uh, some land application fields near the farm. And so those, those two things in particular are, are being contested in this, in this case. The lawsuit that forced the permit change came from citizens of Kiwani County, where the farm is located, and environmental activists from across the state. Evan Feinauer is the staff attorney with Clean Wisconsin, a nonprofit dedicated to protecting Wisconsin's water, air, and natural heritage. He helped file the lawsuit. The backstory here is that Clean Wisconsin took Kennard to court and won a case that started way back in 2012 and wound up in the state Supreme Court, we won last July this case that said, hey, DNR, you have the authority to do more in these permits to address water pollution. Go forth and implement that authority. And so this was kind of the rubber hitting the road in the sense that DNR is now implementing the authority in this case that Clean Wisconsin won last year. So, you know, this is kind of the other shoe dropping in terms of how that lawsuit is now playing out on the ground. Kennard Farms did not respond to WORT's request for comment by airtime. Kennard Farms tells the Wisconsin State Journal that implementing groundwater testing would cost tens of thousands of dollars. They also say that not allowing the farm to double their herd size will harm their business. But a lot of cows means a lot of manure. Tony Wilkin Gibbert is the executive director of Midwest Environmental Advocates, a group that helps residents of Kiwani County bring the original lawsuit against Kennard Farms. He told WORT last month that having that much manure in one place is dangerous to groundwater. We and our, our clients presented to the DNR in the course of this permit modification was a uh, analysis done to show that given the concentration of cows and of large factory farms in Kimwani County, there is nowhere left to safely spread manure. When you total all the manure and all the fertilizer that is present in the county, the landscape cannot absorb that amount of nitrogen without contaminating groundwater and, and resulting in nitrate exceedances. Feinauer says that he is disappointed to see the farm continue to fight against monitoring their groundwater. You know, we settled the question of the department's legal authority last year, and now what we're 
continuing to seize the farm dispute whether or not the department's decision to require monitoring is based on sort of an adequate factual and scientific record. We clearly think it is. We think this groundwater monitoring will be useful and it will point towards future solutions to help improve water quality. So it's disappointing that something as simple and I think to most people's common sense as, hey, let's see what impact we're having is continuing to be contested. The action brought forward by Kennard Farms is not technically a lawsuit, but instead a contested case to review the DNR's decision. This means that the matter will be handled by the DNR, at least initially. Kennard Farms is able to bring the matter before a judge if they so choose. Chris Clayton says that the DNR has not yet made a decision as to whether they will move forward with a hearing. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Earlier today, the Marquette Law School released the results of their latest poll, which gathered info on people's thoughts on Michael Gableman, election confidence, and the 2022 fall general election. Our producer, Nate Wegehaupt, spoke with the director of the Marquette Law School poll, Charles Franklin, earlier today. I'm joined on the line by Charles Franklin, director of the Marquette Law School poll. Charles, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, new poll was released today, and let's sort of just go down the list, starting with this November's election. What did you find? What are people's thoughts on the Democrats running for Senate and the Republicans who are running for governor? In the uh, August Democratic Senate primary, we have Mandela Barnes at 19 percent, Alex Lazary at 16, Sarah Godlewski at 7, Tom Nelson at 5, and we asked about the other seven candidates in the race, but none of them got more than one percentage point of the vote. Uh, but that leaves 48 percent who said they didn't know who they would vote for. So I think that's an important number to watch. It says that a lot of Democratic primary voters really haven't yet focused on this primary. The other point here is that that race has tightened. In February, Barnes was at 23 and Lazary at 13, a 10-point Barnes lead, and that's narrowed to three in this survey. Also, Sarah Godlewski went up a bit from February at three points to seven now. Tom Nelson didn't change. So a little bit of movement in that race, but interestingly, not a higher percentage of people who've made up their minds. Uh, That stayed at 48 percent from February to this month. And so, you know, obviously we're a bit over six months away from the election here. Is that sort of par for the course from other surveys that you've done? Are most people still not quite sure who they're going to vote for this far out? Yeah, I think that's probably an important point to make that um, if you look back at 2018, when we had a very crowded Democratic uh, Senate, I'm sorry, Democratic governor's primary, we saw similarly high percentages of people undecided as late as June. Um, And so, you know, for folks that are paying a lot of attention to politics or involved in campaigns, it's a bit stunning that not everybody knows these people and hasn't made up their minds. But the truth is, half of us haven't made up our minds And that's pretty normal. Uh, Likewise, the name identification, whether people say they can have a favorable or unfavorable view of these candidates, that's under 50% for all of the candidates. 
So again, long time from now to August, and of course, even longer to November. And uh, time will take care of name recognition. These folks will come to be known, but just not quite yet. Yeah, sometimes it's hard for us to, you know, we have to remember that while we sort of look at this stuff every day, not everyone quite does. So moving on from there, next up on your poll, you talk about election integrity as well as confidence in elections. Now, you looked at both this most recent election that happened just earlier this month, as well as the election that happened in November of 2020. What did you sort of find in your research there? Yeah, uh, given the uh, particularly Republican doubts about the 2020 election, I thought it was interesting and important to ask about the election we just held this month, the April election across the state. Um, There, 84% said they're confident in the accuracy of that election. Just 14% have little confidence about it. But as to the 2020 election, um, 64% are confident but 25, sorry, 35% not confident. Uh, I think clearly one of the issues has been whether people really sincerely doubt the integrity of our elections generally, or if that doubt is focused on the one election that Donald Trump and other party leaders have insisted was not accurately conducted, but in this April election, I, I haven't heard anybody complain that this April election was uh, substantially flawed. And I think that's reflected in these numbers. Many more people are confident in the election in April uh, when they don't see party leaders claiming that it was fraudulently conducted, whereas many people are very convinced that the 2020 election was uh, not accurate in some way because they still have party leadership telling them that. And so um, this is a, a problem for how we conduct elections and what kind of confidence we have in them, especially on the side of the loser. But I think we can take a little bit of comfort from these results about the April election. The people's faith in the conduct of elections generally is really not falling apart but we are susceptible to the political messages we get about that question of election integrity. And now, of course, sort of along those lines is the Gableman investigation, which you also asked about. And I was really surprised to see uh, that just 21 percent of Republicans who participated in the poll uh, said that they approved of the investigation. I kind of want to know what are your thoughts on that, as well as some of the other data you found on the Gableman investigation? Yeah, I I think the headline for me is how many people are not aware of the investigation when you think of how frequently it's on the news or in the news, how long running it's been, how uh, Donald Trump has spoken to it as recently as yesterday or the day before. Um, But in our survey, 57 percent said they haven't heard enough about it to have an opinion of it. Overall, 13% approve of it and 27% disapprove. So it's a two-to-one disapproval among that minority that have heard enough about it. But when you break it down by party, you mentioned 21% of Republicans approve. Uh, 
13% disapproved. So on balance, Republicans approved. Democrats are the other way, just 4% approved, 43% disapproved. And independents, which is an important swing group of, uh, maybe a small group of swing voters, but it's an important one in a close state, 14% approved and 23% disapproved. But the thing that still kind of surprises me is by far, Republicans are much more concerned about the 2020 election than Democrats or independents. And yet Republicans are less likely to have an opinion about the Gableman investigation. 64% of Republicans say they haven't heard enough about that, whereas that's 50% of Democrats. So a 14-point gap there. You would think that if you were very concerned about the results of the election, you'd be tuned in and paying attention to the major investigation of that election. But it's simply not the case. And uh, so I'm not entirely sure what the reason is for that difference in attention. But I do think it's rather striking when you consider how much uh, Donald Trump's complaints about that election have dominated Republican politics, that here we have an investigation ongoing and two thirds of Republicans haven't heard enough to have an opinion of it. I've been talking with Charles Franklin, the director of the Marquette Law Poll, about the poll that they released earlier today. You can read that full poll online at law.marquette.edu slash poll. Charles, thank you again for coming on and talking with me today. Thanks. My pleasure. Happy to do it anytime. The time is now 6.23, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Botanical Gardens has a corpse flower in its collection that is expected to bloom this week. These massive plants only bloom once every 8 to 10 years, and the blooms only last for a day or two. The corpse flower gets its name from its foul stench, which could be gracing the gardens in the coming days. WORT reporter Cameron Costanzo headed down to Ulbrich Botanical Gardens for this report. The waiting game begins. Ulbrich Botanical Gardens writes in its Facebook announcement of the impending bloom of one of its most popular plants, the corpse flower. Known officially as the Titan Arum, these plants are indigenous to the rainforests of Sumatra. Their flowers can grow up to 12 feet tall in the wild and produce a smell similar to rotting flesh to attract pollinators like flies and carrion beetles. The coming bloom of a corpse flower, one of four at Ulbrich, is special since these plants only produce flowers and bloom once every 8 to 10 years or so. The flowers were open for only a day or two before they wilt and recede. Katie Nodoff, a spokesperson for Ulbrich, broke down some of the science of the life cycle of the plants for me. Um, It'll either send up a leaf or a flower. 
Um, so more often than not, it sends up a leaf and it needs to send up a leaf every year to gather enough energy to produce a bloom that is this large. Katie also broke down where this corpse flower came from and its history. Yeah, this one was donated to us um, from the university. Um, So it's a descendant of one of their corpse flowers. Um, We've had it since 2006, and it last bloomed in 2010, so about 12 years ago, so it's overdue for a bloom. The corpse flower has yet to open, but it stands tall and ready to release its odors in the coming days. As anticipation of its bloom, I went down to Old Brick Garden and spoke to some of the visitors about the plant. It looks like it's an oversized cucumber or something. I mean, the size, it does. No, it looks like an oversized cucumber. Someone's sticking their tongue out to the world. Well, it looked like something a sculptor might try to do, you know. It looked like a sculpture, I guess, a green sculpture. We're amazed. Some were eager to detect the famous scent, while others had no interest. But because it hasn't opened, there's not a ton to smell yet. Someone should try to smell it. I haven't smelled it yet. Uh, No, no, thank you. I think it's supposed to smell like a corpse. Oh, interesting. Oh, boy. Okay, now i got to smell it. (laughs) I haven't smelled very many corpses before, so (laughs) there's that. It does have a different smell for sure. Pam, a visitor at the garden today, made an interesting observation. (laughs) The proportions are unbelievable. The shape and the proportions are kind of unbelievable. (laughs) I think you're making an innuendo there. (laughs) I don't think she is the first to think this, though. The Latin name for the plant is Amorphophallus titanum, its root coming from the Greek word phallus. Colton Blackburn, a curator, is excited but recognizes the fleeting spectacle that the flower provides. In terms of all the plants in here, what do you think? Uh, it's fleeting, so it's like, you know, I think it's like a big crowd pleaser, but um, ultimately it's just usually a pot of dirt for most of the time that we just like keep back in the greenhouses, so, you know, I don't know. In the past, huge crowds have gathered at Ulbrich to watch the bloom of this flower. It's because I was here a couple of years ago when another one bloomed. What was that like? It was, it was really, it was like packed in here. It was, it was pretty neat. I didn't get a good glimpse of it, though, so I'm coming this year to get a better one. <laughs> Reporting for WORT News, I'm Cameron Costanza. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. There's a lot more coming at you in the second half of the show. The International Crane Foundation tells us about their efforts to keep the whooping crane population healthy. Madison in the 60s looks at a tumultuous Atwood Avenue. And I'll look at some tumultuous weather coming up over the coming days. A fairly big storm passing through the area, so you'll want to hear about that. But first we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. 
Standing at five feet tall, the distinctive black and white whooping crane is the tallest bird in North America. But as climate change threatens coastal wintering grounds for the birds, their existence remains a perilous condition. In a perilous condition, earlier this week, 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Richard Bielfus with the International Crane Foundation about their efforts to save the whooping crane. Richard Balefus is the president and CEO of the International Crane Foundation based in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Richard Balefus joins us now. Hi, hi, Brian. How are you? So how long has the International Crane Foundation been working to restore the whooping crane? We've been working on whooping cranes pretty much since our founding in 1973. We hit 50 years old next year, and uh, whooping cranes have been on our radar screen for pretty much our entire history. So, yeah, it's a, it's a long-term effort for sure. Describe some of those efforts. What sort of on-the-ground or in-the-air activities does the ICF sponsor to help whooping cranes? Right. There's two big tracks of activity. There's the, the surviving wild flock that migrates each year between wood buffalo in far northern Canada and the southern coast of Texas. And that wild flock got down to only about 15 whooping cranes in the wild. That's how, how close that flock came to going extinct. Um, so we've done, we, we have office in Texas and we've done a lot of long-term conservation work for that, that surviving wild flock. And then here in Wisconsin, we've been involved in a 22-year effort now to bring back a new population, to basically to restore a population that was lost uh, in the 1800s from Wisconsin and from the eastern half of the U.S. And so we've been reintroducing whooping cranes in this part of the country. It's kind of a, a buffer, essentially, in case something happens to the original wild flock to have a separate uh, thriving population is the goal for the, the eastern part of the U.S. here. Now, obviously, the goal of any recovery plan is ultimately to restore populations to the point where they're no longer endangered. In your opinion, are we at that point now with the whooping crane? Uh, we are not. We are not there yet. Um, you know, we, we have worked in close partnership with the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service since, uh, you know, the 1970s and 80s. So we have a long partnership with them. And um, we've been lobbying quite hard at this point to say we look forward to the day that we will all celebrate removing the whooping cranes from the endangered uh, species list. We want to celebrate that victory, but we're not there yet. Might be 10 years might be 20 years. Um, we're on the right path, but we're not there yet. Yeah. And how large was the historic peak population of whooping cranes? Do we know? No one really knows, but it was probably sort of thousands. We don't we don't think it was an abundant bird the way our sandhill cranes are that a lot of people know in Wisconsin. That bird is in literally about a million birds across the country um, and probably numbered something like that historically before they had a dip in their population too. We don't think the whooping cranes were anything like those numbers for a number of reasons, but they certainly were were thriving before the period you described when they were heavily hunted and lost habitat about 100, 150 years ago. And what are the characteristics of whooping cranes that, that make them so threatened? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's interesting to compare them to the sandhill crane, which is such a successful species. Whooping cranes have a more finicky, a more restricted diet. A lot of the birds, not, sometimes they'll take to agricultural fields, but they mostly feed on coastal sea life. They'll eat uh, crabs and mussels and other seafood on the coast, and that needs the right environmental conditions for that food. They mostly have only one chick a year, whereas sandhills, um, not every year, but will often have a couple, so it's kind of just that mass of slower recovery. Um, whooping cranes, it takes a whooping crane four or five years to reach 
maturity where they start to have chicks and eggs. And even their sort of bright white visibility kind of plays against them. A sandhill crane can easily hide. We've had sandhill cranes hide from us in rows of corn <laughs> and be unable to find them. You know, a whooping crane, you know, really sticks out. Um, and there's other characters, but in general, it's, it's uh, you know, the cranes are a family of birds that go back practically to the dinosaurs. And, and in a lot of ways, whooping cranes are back to a time, their biology puts them back to a time when we didn't have the kind of human pressure that we have today. A lot of, lot of challenges for those birds. Do they have yeah. natural predators? The chicks have many predators. When they're little guys, when they're eggs and chicks, they're vulnerable to just about anything but uh, coyotes, bobcats, even, uh, you know, almost anything can eat crane eggs like raccoons and skunks and opossums and mink. Um, so they're very vulnerable in those first couple of months when they they can't fly or uh, when they're in the nest still. Once they get to adults, it's mostly sort of humans. It's it, What we're seeing nowadays for losses are power line collisions. Uh, is it uh, takes a toll. The shootings, we've heard about some recently, but the random shootings here and there add up because there's so few birds. So those are the kind of things that, that once they're adult birds, and a, an injured bird might be taken by a predator, but uh, by and large, they're, they're pretty safe when they're, when they're fully flying adults. So what would need to happen before you would be comfortable declaring the whooping crane no longer endangered? Well, we have goals. We, we have specific goals. And uh, for the wild population, the goal is to get the birds to about a thousand in the wild, which is still not a big number. You know, you'd be, <laughs> there, there are very few birds in, in North America that, that are that few in numbers. That's still at the level where you can, you can count everyone and pretty much, you know, track them. But so getting that wild population, I mentioned to about a thousand, and then we need to get the population here in the eastern United States, uh, what we call viable. It has to be self-perpetuating. So the we put birds out in the wild. Those birds have to mate and have chicks and migrate and survive. And then those chicks, which uh, uh, have to have their own chicks, they have to grow up to breeding age and have their own chicks. And then so that we're not supplementing the population anymore. That's what we think of as, as sort of self-perpetuating, you know, like any species in the wild. So we have to get to that point. We are seeing better and better chick survival and that's great but we have to get those chicks you know yeah growing up to where they can reproduce in the wild so we're not we're not at either of those marks yet there's another and that's for the for the wisconsin population here and then there's a non-migrating population down in louisiana that we've been working on too uh, helping support down there and we need likewise need to get that population you know, basically self, self-perpetuating, self so, uh, self-sustaining, as we say. Yeah. Now, the proposed rules that the Fish and Wildlife Service have put out seem to contradict the Fish and Wildlife Service's own 2006 recovery plan. Why is the agency ignoring the advice of its own scientists? Well, I, I think this is, this is more complicated. The Fish and Wildlife is not proposing to remove the species from the endangered list. They were proposing to downlist it, that is, move it from endangered to vulnerable, which is still still on the endangered species list, but it's a, a little bit lower status. So just to clarify that, because they're not proposing it to fully remove it from the list. I also don't know if the proposal is still active. The Freedom of Information Act information was all generated in December. We learned about that proposal and talked with our fish and wildlife partners. And then we went, spoke very high up in fish and wildlife, uh, submitted a formal letter as, as their longest term partner a formal letter of concern. Since that time, 
I, I'm not sure the process has been moving forward. So we're hopeful uh, that Fish and Wildlife is going to delay, as, as, as I said before, I, I hope about 10 years, but the, delay uh, any movement to, to downlist the species. So that's the outcome we're hoping for. Uh, why they would want to downlist, they want to celebrate success too as part of it, you know, and we, we just differ on hitting those milestones. You know, we, like I said, we all want to see the species successful. Uh, nothing should be on the endangered species list forever. Um, but there's just too many threats and too many concerns right now that I think they need to be more aware of. Development pressure on the wintering grounds, uh, hunting still being a big problem, you know, just lots of challenges that we need to overcome before we feel feel confident with that. And yeah. what would downlisting the whooping crane now mean for that species? What would, would some of those impacts be? In terms of protections, it's not a huge change. Uh, delisting would be dramatic. Uh, removal from the list would be dramatic. The downlisting, there's not a lot of really tangible changes. And so it's it's somewhat, I think, in fish and wildlife view, a technical change of status based on hitting certain milestones. And as I said, we just disagree on on having hit those miles, milestones yet. But the the key thing there is I think it just sends the wrong message. A message of downlisting, like a message of removal, is a, um, is a message that the species is thriving and kind of needs less help, needs less uh, protection. And, and that that's where we just don't feel we are right now. And there's some growing sectors, like even uh, energy development, as we put up more wind projects and other projects out west, a lot more power lines. I mentioned before, power line collisions kill a lot of birds. And, you know, we we have to have these energy sources on the land, but we, we need some of the protections that the endangered species list allows us, like to reroute lines if they're really in, in really harmful locations and, you know, gives us more tools to try and help the population where we can. All right, we've been speaking with Richard Balefuss, president and CEO of the International Crane Foundation. For more information on U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service proposed Rule 50 CFR 17, you can contact Elizabeth Macklin. That's Elizabeth underscore M-A-C-L-I-N at fws.gov. Richard Balefuss, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for hosting. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we finally shook off our low overcast yesterday afternoon after a couple days of it, but uh, not soon enough yesterday to do much for our temperatures, which did get stuck in the low 40s all day. I think we had 44 for a high. The mid-level low, which produced yesterday's grimmed-faced stratocumulus deck, that upper low with its uh, convergent swirl of cold air up in the second mile above ground level, that finally edged off to the east during this past overnight. But instead, we woke this morning to a different cloud deck, one that was higher up in the atmosphere, and this time comprised of moisture streaming east-southeastward at us up at about 10,000 feet after having been lifted up uh, out in, on the plains to our west. That uh, lifting process is visible and uh, makes for some interesting viewing, actually, on the visible satellite image of the upper Midwest this evening that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage. That image has the surface wind streamlined, super, uh, streamlines superimposed on it, so you can see how our 
cool, dry, easterly surface winds are undercutting the moisture that's flowing northward up the plains to our west and into a low-pressure circulation that's out in northern Nebraska currently. Indeed, you can almost get a sense of the wedge-shaped warm frontal zone that's setting up across northern Iowa, southern Wisconsin, and northern Illinois with the surface boundary at the thin end of that wedge still way down in central Illinois and with about uh, 4,000 feet now of uh, cool easterly winds overhead here before you reach the warm frontal surface going upward. The cool, dry pad of low-level air is going to be absorbing precipitation for a while for us overnight as southerly winds and moisture transport intensify uh, up above that, but deepening moisture and saturation will eventually win out and produce uh, at least scattered precipitation by morning tomorrow, which will continue off and on then uh, through the day, I think generally pretty light the way it's looking. That will be the first of several pulses of warm warmth and moisture that will be drawn northward into what will be a slow-evolving, slow-moving, and eventually deteriorating storm that's going to be lifting northeastward from the Panhandle region to about northern Wisconsin across the three days from late tomorrow through Sunday evening. Persistent cloud cover through that entire period is going to retard warming, even though we'll be on the southern side of the storm. But it appears we may see enough warming at least aloft on Friday, while the developing storm with its stronger lift is still out to our west, to defeat uh, rain production by and large. That seems to be the consensus of a number of the models. So the next couple of days should be relatively dry, again sprinkly tomorrow, but not too much. However, as the low-level circulation begins to lift from Nebraska into Iowa on Friday night, we should get a pretty strong influx of moisture, uh, mostly aloft at first, but with perhaps enough instability to see at least some elevated thunderstorms during that overnight period. Saturday is then looking uh, convincingly wet with the surface warm front encroaching on the area from the south, at least enough to intensify thunderstorms by later in the day, but with that front not getting quite far enough north to veer our winds southerly and dry us out. We will see that happen on Sunday, but like last week, by that time, the front will be occluded, so it will be bringing in drier but not necessarily warmer air as it comes in from the south. Winds will veer south and southwest from there. But back to tonight, uh, passing mid-level clouds are going to continue to thicken up with uh, passing showers then becoming possible towards maybe 3 or 4 in the morning. Uh, Working generally west to east across the area, temperatures will drop to the low and mid-30s on easterly winds up at 8 to 12 miles per hour. Tomorrow, that light precipitation will continue to work. Again, it turns kind of north and eastward into the area. I think it'll be generally uh, light and intermittent uh, to our over this area and to our south and west with uh, slightly uh, higher amounts, uh, again, falling south and west, maybe a few hundreds to a tenth of an inch, but uh, mostly dry to the uh, far north and east parts of the listening area. Temperatures will reach the mid-40s on east-southeasterly winds at 10 to 15 miles per hour. Cloud cover will hold temperatures in the low 40s during the overnight with rains uh, knocking off, but southeasterly winds will stay fairly active at 10 to 15 miles per hour. 
Friday, the cloud cover may lift some. I'm not expecting much in the way of breaking. Uh, temperatures will reach into the uh, mid-50s on continued southeasterly winds up at uh, 10 to 17 miles per hour. The overcast should thicken up again late day, and we'll see a wave of showers and thunderstorms move into the area from the south and southwest as we go through the overnight period, uh, perhaps with some uh, thunderstorms as well. Temperatures will hold in the mid-40s overnight. Saturday will be uh, generally wet with perhaps a couple concerted rounds of thunderstorms passing, otherwise just transient showers during the day. Temperatures will reach the mid, uh, maybe the upper 50s, and uh, dew points will be a little bit damper and more spring-like. A final round of thunderstorms uh, in the late day period is fairly likely, or perhaps in the early overnight as the cold front start to, starts to approach, or the occluded front. Uh, and that will inaugurate a drier trend as the center of the circulation passes to our north and wind sphere south and southwest going into Sunday, which should be a drier day with temperatures in the mid or possibly upper 50s. At the moment at the station on Bedford Street, we're at 43 degrees. The dew point temperature is 24. Winds are out of the east at 12 miles per hour. We've got uh, an Altostratus overcast up at about 11,000 feet, and the barometer is falling at 30.24 inches of mercury. The time is now 6.49 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to April 1967 for the closest mayor's race in Madison history. A bleak report on Atwood Avenue and local deaths half a world away. Stu Levitan has the news from 55 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, April 1967 Mayor Otto Feske won his first term in 1965 by 8,000 votes. But crime and taxes are both up, college students are causing trouble, the building trades are on strike, and everything feels like it's breaking down. So this election night, April 4th, he's ahead by only about 30 votes, with just one precinct left to report. Feske, 46, almost got to run unopposed, but attorney and former broadcast personality William Dyke enters the race just hours before the January 31st deadline. The 35-year-old, who finished third in the seven-way primary two years ago, campaigns almost exclusively on Feske's spending, taxes, and purported failures of leadership, and avoids culture and crime. A former aide to Republican Lieutenant Governor Jack Olson, Dyke enjoys active support of local and state Republican officials. While the Dane County Democratic Party doesn't even endorse Feske, even though he had been elected county clerk six times as a Democrat. 
At least the Madison Federation of Labor's Committee on Political Education does endorse the incumbent. Fesky cites as his primary accomplishments the recent acquisition of a site on Milwaukee Street for the long-sought Eastside Hospital, making progress on the Monona Basin Auditorium and Civic Center, and forming the Alliance of Cities to lobby for better state-shared revenue. And he notes that most of the tax hike has been for the schools, not city services. Fesky runs moderately well throughout the city. Dyke wins fewer wards, but by larger margins, especially his Nakoma neighborhood. It all comes down to University Heights, a precinct with a thousand votes. About 10 p.m., the last numbers come in. Fesky 511, Dyke 474. Fesky gets his second term by just 75 votes, reduced to 62 after a recount. 17,261 to 17,199. He's in for another term and another rough two years. Fesky's planning department continues its work on the Atwood Avenue Business District, issuing a bleak report in April on its, quote, depressing and unexciting appearance that is unplanned, inconvenient, unattractive, a commercial district of old, deteriorating structures and skyrocketing vacancies. City consultants Midwest Planning and Research Incorporated find most of the buildings are in poor or fair condition and, quote, a declining community spirit, especially among the young people living and working in the area, evidenced by a lack of local focus on neighborhood problems. Their 72-page solution is a private urban renewal plan, starting with a 40,000-square-foot shopping center featuring a full-service supermarket and chain drugstore on the lakeside corner of Atwood Avenue and Winnebago Street. In order to provide a more pedestrian-friendly environment by diverting cars from Shanks Corners, the consultants propose a new road aligned with the railroad tracks from 1st Street to Division Street. The report also says the venerable Eastside Businessmen's Association has become, quote, too diffused to be effective in promoting the area's revitalization and recommends a new non-profit corporation be created to acquire and redevelop properties. Lots going on on campus. On the first, graduate student Paul Soglin's resignation from the WSA Student Senate takes effect as he leaves to work on campus community relations through the new University Community Action Party. On the second, legendary bebop trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie brings his quintet to the Union Theater for two shows. On the third, the faculty approves a new visitation plan, allowing each residence hall living unit to decide by a two-thirds vote whether to allow visitors of the opposite sex in their rooms between noon and 10 p.m. on either Saturday or Sunday. Visitations are voided if the living unit serves beer at a social function before or during the visitation period. House officers will be responsible for enforcing the requirement that doors, quote, must be left ajar during visits. On the 8th, the Student Peace Center presents the largest anti-military ball yet, featuring satirical skits and music by Ben Sidron and Johnny Kalb. And on the 11th and 12th, a coalition led by Madison Students for Democratic Society, the United Community Action Party, and Committee to End the War in Vietnam conducts an orderly rally and picketing of CIA recruitment interviews at the law school. About 150 students, 
mostly young women, sit in without obstructing, while up to 800 rally on Bascom Hill. About 50 students interview with the agency, although some, like former SDS leader Marty Tandler, who lists another SDS officer as a reference, are not actually seeking employment. News from the public schools. On April 4th, Ruth B. Doyle, project assistant for the Dean of Student Affairs focusing on recruitment and support of black students and wife of federal judge James E. Doyle Sr. is easily re-elected to her second three-year term on the school board. Herbert Marcus, whom Mayor Feske appointed to the board last October when attorney Richard Cates resigned, also wins a full term. On the 20th, Superintendent Robert Gilberts, who succeeded Philip Falk in January 1963, accepts appointment as the superintendent of the Denver public school system. On July 5th, the school board votes 4-3 to to name West High Principal Douglas S. Ritchie as the new superintendent. Doyle, who cast the only vote against Ritchie's appointment as principal in 1964, leads the opposition, saying Madison is too big to be a starter district for a first-time superintendent. On the 12th, Rock and Roll makes its first appearance at the new Dane County Coliseum with Paul Revere and the Raiders as the headliners. And April is indeed the cruelest month, as two Madison families mourn soldier sons killed in Vietnam. On the 14th, Army Private First Class James Cliffcorn, 22, Edgewood Academy Class of 1962, is fatally shot while serving with the 1st Cavalry Division in the Anlo Valley. Cliffcorn was three months shy of graduating from Mary Knoll Seminary and entering the priesthood when he dropped out to join the Army and go to Vietnam. An Army Specialist 4th Class Leonard D. Thompson, 21, 42 Worth Court, is killed when his tank battalion is ambushed in Quang Tri Province on April 25th. A member of Plymouth Congregational Church, He worked at Sub-Zero before entering the Army shortly after his graduation from Eastside High School in 1965. He had served in country for about six months. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Cameron Costanzo. Cameron is is here for his first night. This is his first day volunteering, so we want to throw him a big welcome. Welcome, Cameron. Special thanks to feature contributors Brian Standing and from the 8 o'clock buzz and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan is back in the engineering booth this evening. Nate Wegehaupt produced the newscast, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. <laughs>